You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to episode 79 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host, Bart Bouchot, and this is the show for April 2020. I'm happy to say I have an interview show for you this month. Um, freelance journalist and photographer Kirk McElhern was kind enough to spend a little bit of time with me on Skype today, and we recorded a conversation where Kirk evangelizes the photographer Michael Kenna. Uh, there will be show notes available at let'slashtalk.ie and uh, it's probably good to have those open while you listen because Kirk has chosen six photographs as a sort of a, a portal through which to understand um, th- this photographer and to analyse this photographer. Uh, so you can watch along to the photographs we're talking about if you go to let'slashtalk.ie. Uh, Without much further ado, I'll just cut over to the recording from this morning. Um, Kirk is good enough to give out his various links during the recording, and I will give them out again at the end of the show. So I'll hand over to me from earlier in the day. Kirk, thank you very much for agreeing to sit down and have a chat to me. Um, This is your first time on this podcast, so... Can I maybe just take a minute or two just to, to introduce the listeners to your good self? I, I know you through um, Jeff Carlson, who's been a guest on the show. And with my other hat on, I, I'm an, an IT professional and a Mac podcaster. And you intersect both of those worlds in your day job, where I regularly read articles from you describing Mac security problems on the Intego security blog. Um, and then I hear you in my ears at the weekends talking wonderful photo stuff with Jeff. So do you want to just I don't know, give out some links and tell people where they can find you? Um, I, I'm i a journalist and podcaster and you can my, – my hub, my nexus is Kirkville.com. That's the name of my website where I post links to everything I do. Um, I record the Photoactive uh, podcast. I recorded a podcast for Intego called the Intego Max Security Podcast. Um, the next track is a music podcast that I do, and there's plenty of others. It's quite the, um, what's this, the, yeah, quite the range. Quite the range. It is, yes, yes. Um, I've been a freelance journalist for, I don't know, getting on 20 years. I write mostly about Apple stuff. And I love photography, hence the Photoactive podcast. I love music, hence the next track. Um, we all need to do lots of different well not everyone i need to do lots of different things i have lots of interests and if i had more time i would probably do podcasts on other things i know the feeling i i am itching 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 to do a cooking podcast but there are only 24 hours Mm -hmm. in the day and there's only seven of those yeah that's a bit tough um i I mean I, i love to cook personally but the idea of a cooking podcast i don't I don't know how interesting it would be without being able to actually see what's going on. That's See, I'm not a big fan of YouTube in general, but for cooking, YouTube is great because people are showing you what's actually what they're doing. Um, and that's a big difference than just talking about something. Yeah, uh, you know, with yeah. the Photoactive podcast and, and with your podcast about photography, you need to see photos that people are discussing. 
Um, and, and most people, they're listening to podcasts. Well, most people used to listen to podcasts when they were commuting. That's changed <laughs> now. Interesting, yes. Um, so that kind of makes it more difficult for people to see what you're talking about. Yeah, true, true. Um, now, yourself and Jeff, you focus very heavily on um, photographing with Apple devices. Um, so in, in your day-to-day photographic life, are you mostly an iPhone tutor or do you play with big boy cameras too? Um, I mostly use a Fujifilm X-T3. Um, I, I use a real camera. I think the iPhone is wonderful for certain things, but for me, it's not a photographic tool that's more than – you can take really nice snapshots, and, and it's got a great night mode, and portrait mode is a cute effect, but it's not for me – uh, I don't want to be limited to these fixed lenses. I don't want to have to pay uh, 50% more to get a telephoto lens on a phone. Um, for, for what the ecosystem offers in terms of everyday photography, it's brilliant. But I want more when I take pictures. Interesting. Yeah, it's, I, I, I get a little, about a lot on the bike. And so for me, the portability of the iPhone and the fact that the, with the iPhone 11 Pro, it's finally reached that magic point where it's like, no, this is good enough. And this is the camera that's always with me. Uh, yeah, I think if they up the megapixels a little bit, it'll make a huge difference. Uh, apparently, there are rumors that the iPhone 12, whenever it's released, will have a better sensor or more megapixels because 12 megapixels is a bit limited when you want to crop, when you want to, you know, do any kind of serious editing. But I, I'm just it's for me, photography is not something that I just do spontaneously. When I want to take pictures, I get my camera. I decide which lens I'm going to use. Um, I go out someplace and then I'm focused on photography. Uh, the the phone is great if you're a spontaneous photographer or if you go biking, like you yeah. say, you see something nice and you want to stop. But I just need that real camera. I mean, I started shooting film back in the early 80s. Yes. So I still – while I don't care about shooting film today, I still have that – feel of wanting the camera between my hands looking through the viewfinder i can't shoot you know when you're outside in the sun you're holding the iphone at arm's length it's very hard to see what's on the screen to be able to get yes. your your composition right your lighting right and for me that's not photography but i understand why for a lot of people it is and, and why some people can make wonderful photos with the iphone yeah, I mean, the last time I had Jeff on was actually to talk about the winners of Apple's iPhone photo contest, uh, their night mode one, actually, specifically. Yeah. And those were really quite stunning images. And myself and Jeff had a very fun conversation about those. Um, now, I've invited you to continue our series of evangelizing photographers so that the audience get to, to learn about new photographers they may not have heard of or to get more excited about ones that they may have heard of. Now, the photographer you've chosen, um, Michael Kenna, looking at his photographs, I definitely get the impression him and you share a view on cameras because these these photographs he takes, I don't think they are of the snapshot variety. These seem extremely planned. Yes, they're extremely planned. Um, he shoots on film with a Hasselblad. Uh, many of them are long exposures. They could be an hour. They could be eight hour overnight exposures. Um, it, these are very deliberate photos. Yes. Yeah. And they, 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 like, I, you could ask me, um, take a guess whether this guy was active in the 1800s, 1900s, 2000s, or last week. And I'd be like, toss a coin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
to be fair, he almost has a style of his own. Uh, we talk about minimalist photography. Mm. Uh, if, if you go on uh, Instagram, you'll see minimalist photography. It's often that glassy water with long exposures and sticks coming out of the water and piers and kind of invented this. I mean, he's been shooting since what? He started in the early 1980s. He's about 65 years old, I think. Um he he established a body of work before it became a trend, and he's refined it over time. Now, I, I said to you before we started, if you go to his website, um, you'll see a fantastic image on the front page. The thing is, whenever people listen to this podcast, that image may have changed. Yeah, yeah, um, so you said you're going to put some images in the in the show. He yeah. changes them every couple of weeks. So, so let's um, take a moment so for the you, practicalities. So, listeners, if you go to letslashtalk.ie and you go to the show notes for this episode, uh, which I think will be episode 79, then there'll be a link to michaelkenna.com. So he spells it with two N's. Um, and his his website is minimalist and beautiful, but it's not really possible to link to specific images because of his use of JavaScript. So Kirk has very kindly... Yeah chosen some photographs he really likes and sent them on to me separately. So I'm going to embed those into the show notes in the order they are in Kirk's email to me. And that way, if you go to lessashtalk.de, you can follow along with us. But definitely go to michaelkenna.com because, well, there's a lot of photos here, a lot more than the ones we can talk about today. And it's it's a feast for the eyes, uh, frankly, to spend a little bit of time on this website. So definitely, I think everyone should should do that. Um, but you said to me when you saw the photos that I emailed you that they were lovely. And I said to you, well, they might not be lovely to everyone. Um, it, it's a style of photography that you have to like. And not everyone is going to appreciate um, this kind of minimalism. Um, so yes. if we just talk about the one that's on the front page right now, um, and I guess you'll put this first in the show notes. Yes. It's, it looks like – what do you, is it a seawall, a break that, that's in a harbor? Right. And it's coming out into the sea and you've got um, you've got a gradation of white light coming into the center on an angle. You've got darker light. You've got a horizon. You've got clouds. It's visibly a long exposure. Um, there's an abstract nature to this photo, which is really fascinating. Yeah. It, it's some people will look and they'll think it's boring. And I look and I think this this is a window on a world. Um, now, I was fortunate to meet and interview Michael Kenna um, last year in June. He had an exhibit in a town called Bosom on the southern coast of England. And we spent a fair amount of time talking. And one thing that he said um, is that he looks at his photos as if they're haikus, as if uh -huh. they're opening doors and asking questions. And when I look at this particular photo, and I, I actually can't see when, – when you go through his um, – website and you go to the different galleries in the image archive, you'll see the names and when they were shot. But the one on the front page doesn't say that. Um, so I don't know. This could be any place, any harbor, um, any place on the sea. But what, what you've got is this contrast of light and the lines that is totally – it's totally abstract. It, it's not showing anything. And this isn't the case for all of his photos. But yeah. this one in particular, to me, it stands out. There's a beauty in here. Um, in this subtle black and white and gray image that I just think it's I just think it's arresting. Well, I mean, it, it's very striking. So his entire, as far as I can see, I, I, I spent a bit of time poking around his page. As far as I can see, he shoots exclusively in, in monochrome. So yes. immediately he's not using color to express himself in any way. So he's immediately taken that out. 
uh, he he to me what strikes me is shapes are a huge thing for his his way of expressing himself um and i mean the one you've picked here is such a good starting point because there's nothing here except for shape and tone that that is that is exactly. his entire palette is shape and tone yeah, in and this particular this... photo, that's that's exactly right. Um, one, one thing that's interesting is, so since the 1980s, I guess um, late 80s, early 90s, he shot exclusively in a square format. Um, and he said to me um, in the interview, he said, there's a predictability about the 35 millimeter format. You have to make choices right from the beginning. Should it be vertical? Should it be horizontal? And then he said when he first started using a two and a quarter inch um, film camera, uh, it's a waist level viewfinder. So everything's back to front. He said it was a completely different format for me and it made me look more abstractedly at the landscape. It just becomes forms, lines, shapes, and densities. Hmm. Now, he's using a Hasselblad now with a viewfinder that he's looking straight through. So you don't have that upside down bit that you did on an old camera, but he's still taking the same approach to a lot of his photos. Again, some of the photos have subjects and we'll get to them later, but some of them are purely abstract like this. Yeah. It's, I mean, the the reason I I sort of, uh, what strikes me is the timelessness and it's because they have that feel of like, they could have been taken by some of the earliest pioneers going out west. They could have been taken by Ansel Adams. You just can't pin a time on so much of his work. It's yeah. not of a moment. It's just of this earth. Although I guess, yeah. I mean, there are man-made bits in some of his shots and some of his less abstract shots um, on his webpage so strike me as, as beautiful rural England, I presume. They look English to me. Maybe they're not English. Oh, no, no. A lot of what you're seeing is um, shot in Japan or Germany. If you go to the image archive link on his website, you'll see the various countries. Um, he has probably shot more in Japan, um, even China. Uh, there's not a lot that he's shot in the UK, to be honest. So he was born in, in the UK and he was raised there and he now lives in the US. He moved in the 80s to, I think, San Francisco. He now lives in Seattle. Yeah. Um, so, so, so he's not um, – he's not – he doesn't take photos of an area that make it necessarily indicative of where it is. Yeah, there I are, again, it some exceptions. England, but it's France. So that goes – to show how off the mark I am because I just looked at the caption and said Fra- Bourgogne. I was like, oh, well, it's very is pretty. That, is that what the front photo is? Uh, no, sorry, that's not the front photo. It's uh, okay. his recent work. The, there's one in the top right with a silhouette of a winter bare tree and a church spire. And yeah. in the abstract, I just thought, well, if I was rural, thinking of rural England, that would strike me. But no, it's 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 France. Yeah, and, and actually, the recent work page is is a very interesting place to look. Um, you'll see photos from a variety of locations, uh, of a variety of types. There are a number of photos of Buddhas because he's preparing a book of Buddha photos for next year. Um, the ones with the snow and the trees and the fences, those are all from Hokkaido in Japan. Um, some of them, there are some cityscapes, some of them, you see some nudes, uh, which is actually quite interesting. Um, he never shot photos with humans in them for a long time, or at least he never published them. Yeah. Um, if you look through his photos, not only are they not photos of people, but there are no sort of people wandering by. Um, and he told me that sometimes with the long exposures, people will wander in and out of the frame, but they just don't show up. If you're taking a six hour exposure, um, they might, there might be yeah. a tiny ghosting yeah. where they were, but 
at one point he started shooting nudes in Japan and he only released a book of them uh, last year, a book called Rafu, R-A-F-U. Um, but other than that, he doesn't shoot people. And, and that's another element that I find that makes his photos almost otherworldly. The fact that there's no humans in them, even when he's shooting um, Notre Dame, uh, or, yeah, Notre Dame in Paris, or or a car factory in Detroit, um, there are no humans, and that that gives it more of a timeless element as well. What's particularly interesting is so the no humans thing is is very striking as as you scroll through his recent work. But the other thing that catches me is bird silhouettes do seem to be certainly in his recent work. It seems to have caught his eye recently. His bird silhouettes. <laughs> Well, so that's the thing. He released a book. Um, a French publisher had been looking at his photos and said, wow, you have a lot of photos of birds. And he said, you're right. And the publisher said, well, I'd like to publish a book of photos of your photos of birds. So he went through the archive and found and printed a whole lot that he had never printed. That's why they show up in the recent work. That's why you see birds. That's why you see Buddhas. Um, the recent work is the things he's printed most recently. What I love about the recent work is how mixed it is. How because he's he's playing with all sorts of things. It's industrial, you know, factories. Yep. It's agricultural. Fences, fascinating fences. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's but the again, this world. this is this is maybe twenty or thirty years of work that he's pulled some old photos out of his archive and printed them for the first time. Yeah, I mean, personally, just given my 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 the things I like his. His silhouettes of trees are what strike me personally as as particularly to my taste. Um, but well, very, very let, let's look at a tree photo. In the photos I sent you, yeah, um, you see a photo of a tree, and it's a very striking, gnarly old tree. There's a shadow on the snow beneath it. There's a there's a bit of clouds above the horizon, and then the sky is blue. Um, if you go to his website and you go to the image archive and then you go to Japan, then you click on Kusharo Lake. So he shot this particular tree for 15 or 20 years. Every time he was in Japan, he would shoot this same tree. Um, it became known locally as Michael Kenna's tree yeah. because he was so well known for shooting it. And in fact, some of those photos there are among his iconic photos. Um, and at one point a few years ago, he went back to shoot the tree and it was gone. Someone had oh. cut it down. He explained it was on the edge of a lake by a campsite and maybe it got damaged and then someone decided to cut it down and it's all gone. But he has these studies. He, he said to me that it, it almost became a friend that every time he went back there, it would be a little bit different. Uh, it would have grown more. Some of the branches were blown off in the wind. Um, and he documented this tree for a very long time. So the photo that I've selected is actually one of the photos that I have on my wall here. Um, I purchased a few of his photos. And what I like about this one is this stark contrast between the tree that's in shadow, the shadow on the ground, the, the horizon, the clouds and the sky. Um, unlike some of the other photos of this tree, it, you don't really see the small branches as well because they go into the darkness of the sky. But again, it's these lights and shapes that I just find, I find them seductive in some ways that, that I look at these photos and they talk to me and yet I find them very relaxing as well. See, what's particularly fascinating to me is, uh, so the one you've chosen is an extremely striking shot because very strong contrast like yeah the blacks are they're black and the whites yeah. in that sky the, the 
I would imagine they're technically blown out if you're going to be all pixel peepy pernickety, which you shouldn't be with artistic photographs, of course. Well, especially when it's film. And and remember that these are all um, he goes in the darkroom and spends a great deal of time dodging and burning. Um, these are silver gelatin photos. Um, he puts a lot of work into the actual um, photo printing element of this. So a question of bloning being blown out doesn't even it's not even something you talk about in film. No, because it, well, for a start, he because he's choosing the processing, he is deciding as he makes the print how he wants these exactly these contrasts. And what yeah. he wanted here clearly was very contrasty. Yes. Um, and I'm assuming he used a blue f uh, a filter of some sort to get that sky to be so dark because I don't think it's a nighttime shot judging by the sharp shadows. And it um, it's certainly not a nighttime shot uh, because, as you say, there's shadows. Whether he used a filter or not, I don't know. Whether he did that in the dark room, um, I guess you can uh, take the blue light out in the dark room later, can't you? Well, no, you can no, just you... burn that bit on the top, expose it more when you're making the print to make it darker. That's true. It could just be a graduated, yeah. Yeah. No, a lot of his work does involve dodging and burning um, to, to how would you say? Emphasize? Yeah, emphasize or to tweak. Um, you, you'll notice that if you look through in different types of his photos, um, you'll see contrasts that don't necessarily look like expected contrasts sometimes. Yes. And, and that's, then that's a choice, again, in the darkroom. But that's as much a part of the photographic process as as the, I mean, to me, I've always thought of photography as a game of three acts. You plan, you execute, and you process. And if you mess up either of those three, you don't have a good photo. Uh, yeah, and it's even more the case with printing from film. But of course, if you mess up um, when you print from film, maybe you have can just go. try again and print again. It, you know, um, you, you have a lot of options. Uh, he... he He's been printing for 40 years or even more since he went to art school. Um, I had some experience printing when I was shooting film back in the day and it didn't last long. And I know that it's an interesting process. Um, I think <clears throat> I think the printing process is as much uh, a part of his art as the photographic process. Yeah, well, that's certainly the impression I, I would get looking at his, you know, at his work here. He's. He's putting as much of his heart and soul into both of those. Um, so let's look at another one that I sent you. Uh, so this is a um, photo of the mountains of Huangshan in China. Yes. Um, and this is another one that I have on my wall. And this is, to me, this is just a, a perfect photograph. Um, normally, he was explaining to me when we were talking about his photos in general that you're generally attracted to the dark elements first. You're generally attracted to the center of a photo. Um, mm. And here, your eye goes first to the bottom of that curved mountain, but then it goes up to the right where you've got this tree standing on the pinnacle um, in what could be considered an odd composition. The tree is all the way at the edge. But then for me, the eye goes back down and then flows into the, the valley with the fog off into the distance. Um, I just think this is – this is – OK, Ansel Adams is one reference for black and white landscapes and it's a very specific kind. But to yes. me, this is a kind of a, a, um, a paradigm of a perfect landscape um, that is more than just a picture of the landscape. Well, yeah, so – I mean, the, the layering caused by the, the sort of the haziness of the day gives you an immediate sense of depth here because 
the near mountain is very black and then the next one is quite grey and then the distant one is extremely grey to the point of almost being white, sort of fading away. But what strikes me immediately is, so because of the square crop, what he has going here is the most striking diagonals, which is, I think, these really strong triangular shapes really, really hold the composition for me. And so you're right that the tree on the top right is arguably weird, but I don't think it is because to me it gives the eye the perfect place to start and then to follow the ridge line into the into the landscape. So it's sort of, it's like my, oh, hello. And then I, my eye flows, falls downhill into the image and gets completely sucked into the landscape. Yeah. Um, it's it, it, all of his Huangshang photos. There's a book of about 70 of them. Um, and you can see a lot more on the website in the image archive. And you get a lot of these, these unexpected compositions. There's a lot of fog. There's a lot of layering. There's a lot of things that don't necessarily fit in the normal location. Mm. Um, and, and so in, in many of his photos being square, um, things are centered, but in many of them, they're not. And it's a bold choice. If you were to take a photo that you shot, uh, that's a landscape and decide, okay, if I'm going to crop this to square, where would I crop it? Where would I put the the elements that I put in it? Um, so I tend to be an aspect ratio fundamentalist. I don't want to take a photo and move the aspect ratio to fit the photo. I want the photo to fit the aspect ratio. And for me, the three to aspect ratio is the canonical aspect ratio. And it sort of represents the way we see, right? Um, we see wider than than tall because we have yeah, two I've eyes. Felt that, that I, it's one of the things that makes me cranky about the iPhone is it insists on being four by three or 16 to nine. It's like, okay, yeah. well, you've given me a drop down to let me choose the format between square four by three and 16 to nine. And you've left out the aspect ratio. Yeah, exactly. Uh, This said, I love the square format and I find myself more and more cropping my photos to square because of the sort of equal weight that you get for the vertical and the horizontal that lets you position elements anywhere in the frame and they don't look out of place. So if you look at this photo we were just talking about with the tree, imagine if this was a wider 3-2 aspect ratio. I think you'd have an imbalance um, with the position of the tree and the width of the frame going off too wide. So you couldn't put it all the way at the edge like this. Now, obviously, it really depends on what kind of photos you shoot, what kind of photos you want to look at. Um, But I think that training the eye to use a square format is something that – it's something to put in your toolkit as a photographer. Um, not all photos work well in a, a landscape format. I hate shooting portrait because of that optical illusion that makes a portrait photo look thinner and taller than it really is compared to the landscape in the same aspect ratio. I, I literally never shoot portrait because of that. Um, portrait landscapes are hard unless you're trying to use that effect to your end. So you're trying to sort of hijack that effect. Well, what I I find is a lot of portrait landscapes, when I look in photo magazines, they're like, there's this beautiful castle off in the distance, but hey, look at this big rock that I've got in the foreground. And to me, that is a failed composition. If if you're trying to highlight something in the foreground, whereas your subject's in the background, that to me is cacophony. Um, Well, unless you you provide a route through the shot, right, which takes a lot more skill. If if you provide a journey through the photograph, then I I can buy that kind of thing. 
but you need to give you can't just give me the two you got to give me you got to give me the in between so maybe the idea is that you want to capture you know the texture of the landscape and the big picture view of the landscape but then you need to provide me with a route maybe a zigzagging path a river you need to provide me a thing to take me on the journey from that foreground to but, that background. But very rarely do I see photos where it works. It's darn hard. That's, that's it, it is. And and it, it's more a gimmick. It's more a way of saying I've got this great wide angle lens so I can get the foreground and the background. Um, but I mean, there's a big difference between the kind of photos that we shoot and the kind of photos that someone shoots who is an artist. And well, we can learn from the artist and even try to emulate. Um, but duplicating is not easy. And, and that's a point that uh, we make on Photoactive. Um, at the end of each episode, we have our snapshots, which are pics that we want to talk about, mm. um, a new lens, a gadget, an app, whatever. I often choose photo books because for me, the best way to learn how to photograph is to see how other people photograph. I um, could not agree more because and, – and it doesn't – it strikes me as weird that that isn't the norm, that everyone doesn't just say that because – I don't think I've ever heard anyone advise someone how to become a writer without saying read, right? Yeah. That but, is standard advice. And when you, I want to get better at photographing. Why does no one say look at photographs? Well, they might see the, the photography world for people like us is, is kind of strange because it used to be mainly guided by photography magazines. So mm. you'd have a photography magazine that would come out with an article about, I don't know, black and white landscapes. And then for months, people would be shooting black and white landscapes. Now it's guided by Instagram and other social media, which is just – it's just like a dog's dinner of whatever people put out. And you lose sight of of that – that time you can sit down with a photo book for a half an hour or an hour with a nice cup of tea or a single malt and take the time and look at the photos and look at them, not just swipe up after you've seen one. Yes. Um, but it depends on what you want to do in photography. Well, you it, see, it's you've hit you, you've hit on the reason I'm doing this series. Right. The reason I'm inviting people on to evangelize photographers is precisely to encourage people to to look more deeply. And even if you shoot in a completely, totally and utterly different style to the person being evangelized on a particular day, I think you can still learn because what I, what I certainly take away from, from Michael Kenna's work here is the minimalism really, really, really forces you to think about what makes a composition work because there's nothing else that's going to do it here. If if he doesn't compose these photographs well, because he's thrown colour away, because he's thrown so much away, he has to work so hard with his compositions. And if you want to figure out what makes a composition work, this is very useful, I think. Okay, let's look at another one. And this is the one with the sticks and the birds. Yes. Um, so this was shot in France in Saint-Nazaire. And it's just a wonderfully spontaneous photo. There are these three curved sticks coming out of the water um, with birds on top of each one, and fortuitously, there's a bird just to the left flapping its wings. Um, I think he shot this with a Holga. So he uses a Hasselblad, but he always had a, a Holga with him as well, um, often to take quick photos, but also just because sometimes he wants to use the simpler camera. Mm. And you look at this photo, there's this darkness in the background, this band of darkness, and, and that's probably the sea. It, yeah. it sort of melts into the sky, which is cloudy. 
And you have these three birds who are perfectly centered. The birds are in the, the, the precise center of the square. The, the angle of those sticks that comes up is sort of counterbalanced by the bird that's flying. Again, this is a fortuitous image. Now, maybe he shot a few um, and picked this one. But this this is a very, very minimalist image where the shapes have a – they almost tell a story in a way, right? The birds right. are there. You can look at where their heads are. You can see the one on the left is looking out at the other bird. You don't know what's happening. Does the bird on the left want to sit on one of those poles that are already taken? Um, what are the poles is, is sort of the first question that comes to me, right? Because I, they're man-made, I think, but they're not a typical oh, man-made shape, right? Because there's No, usually curve. that kind of pole is straight, yeah. So they look um, almost rib-like. I mean, there's something, I don't know, I sort of think like, are they like massive whale bones? Or what? The... Well, I'm thinking maybe the, the ribs of a of a ship, right? A wreck, maybe, yeah. Yeah, but why would there just be three sitting there? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's um, wonderful. And, and I mean, in fact, that, that kind of question is part of what's interesting in any photo like this, is what is it, but do you need to know what it is, Right. I, th- I think it, basically, what I guess the argument I'm making is you don't, but it it just makes you ask these questions, right? It, it's sort right. of, and the other thing that strikes me immediately is I don't know if I would ever be brave enough to put something as strong as that black band and make it so small in my shot. I would be afraid that that would feel or that would feel too harsh or something. But no, it absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah, and and again, looking at these photos gives you. I've always felt – I mean I think it's obvious there's no rules in photography. If, if you read photo magazines, you're going to be told that there is this bogus rule of thirds, which I think is – we did an episode on the photoactive I, podcast. I like the guideline of thirds. It, it can be useful. OK. Um, but there are no rules. You can do anything. Yeah. This is art. So why not put that strong band of black? Why not um, – why not vignette the top a little bit with with burning to make it a little bit darker? Um, you can do anything you want. And again, looking at photos by different photographers gives you an idea of what your possibilities are. Yeah. And it's like, to, to me, the way I describe the rule of thirds on this show is that it's a guideline to help you get towards a balanced feeling composition so if your intention is to make the viewer feel uncomfortable, it's the inverse rule of thirds. You should avoid it if, you know, it's only I think a it mechanism. becomes a crutch too easily. I yes. think yeah. if um, when Jeff and I did um, an episode on the rule of thirds, one thing I did is I looked at a page on the Guardian website and every week they have a page of like 20 photos that mm. were in the news. Um, not Maybe one of them had some rule of thirds element to it, but uh, I think all, 19 others didn't. And now, these were all press, photog- press photographs for the most part. Um, they're not the kind of thing where someone's taking a lot of time to compose, yet a professional photographer is composing all the time. Yeah. They're moving the camera around to get things where they want, and they're not in thirds in any way. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that as you look at photographs – by real photographers who are artists, um, that sort of thing just collapses. But, you know, I don't really. <laughs> it's, uh, no, to me, it, it, it's, it's a useful tool if you're trying to make a harmonious composition and you're still trying to figure it. It's a, it's a mechanism for arriving at a balanced feeling composition that can be useful. 
but it gets blown up into this Bible. That's not well, what it is. Well, look at the photo of the tree on the mountain in China, right? Yes. And that, that shows that the rule of thirds just isn't. Well, right. You're, absolutely. There's, it's not a rule. Absolutely. It's, I, my argument is that it can be a way to make harmonious feeling compositions, but it's a way of making harmonious feeling compositions, not the way of making yeah, harmonious um, compositions. I'll let you win on this because it's your podcast. <laughs> it's actually, it's a, I might actually, I, might, you, you, I may have you back on for a dedicated argument because I think it could be great fun. Um, because um, I, again, is, if you look at a lot of photographers, you just won't see that. But so back to the point of looking at photographers, I, I love black and white photography. Um, and I remember um, uh, an interview with Jean-Luc Godard, the French filmmaker. This is back in the 90s, I think. And someone asked him, he had just released a film in black and white. And why did you release this film in black and white? And he said, life is in color, but reality is in black and white. Mm. And I find that really powerful. The fact that you strip away the things that attract us and distract us. Um, you're, you're wearing a sort of a green um, top there, like a, um, I don't know. A, a, I, I, luminous, I think. It, a, it's, a bicycle shirt or something well, it, it like that. It happens to be a jogging one because I'm not allowed on my bicycle these days. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of turns the image of saying, by the way, we're talking on Skype, we've got the video and that's how I know what you're wearing. And, yeah, and yeah, it's kind not of, creepy folks. It's, yes. <laughs> it's professional. And that kind of, that takes your image and converts it into something that has a message of color. Um, whereas when you strip out the color, again, you're going back to the shapes and the forms and the lights and the, and, and the feelings a, a lot more than you are with color. And now, Color's great. I've been doing a lot of flower photography in color over the past couple of weeks. My, sorry, the past couple of years. My partner has become an avid gardener, and I've been finding it very interesting to do really close-up photos of flowers on a black background. And sometimes the color is extraordinary, but then I convert those photos into black and white, and I say, ah, right. Something else here. Yeah. So color has its value, but um, – I understand any photographer who is committed to black and white because this is a way of choosing your palette, your visual palette over over a career mm. as opposed to just occasionally making black and white photos um, to the point that the more you do it, the more you get used to appreciating light and shadow. And, and, and if there's one thing I've learned from Michael Kenner's photos is that when I go out and I take photos um, – so I usually shoot a Fujifilm X-T3 and I put it into Acros mode, which is their black and white film simulation. So when I'm looking for the viewfinder, I'm seeing the black and white. Right. And that way I can look for that sort of thing, light and shade and contrast in a different way and not even be distracted by color. Obviously, I see color through my eyes. Yes. Yeah. But through the camera, I don't. And I can weigh the different – the way the light is and, and maybe even adjust the exposure compensation according to what I'm seeing, um, which the color would definitely balance the exposure differently. Yeah. Um, is it fair to say that if you take color out, texture becomes so much more dominant in the image? Well, texture and shape and contrast, um, most of all, and I think contrast is probably the biggest thing. Um, again, if you look at the uh, photo of the tree that we looked at earlier, the Kusharo Lake tree, the contrast of the 
tree that's sort of sidelit. You can see from the shadow it's coming across from left to right. Um, the fact that the tree itself is in shadow, um, if you had that in color, you'd see some of the tree a little bit being a different color. You'd have the mm. blue sky behind. Um, so things would be very different. Once you take out the color, all you're left with is the light or not, right? It's just yes. a series of shades of gray. Yes. Yeah, it's and, and although, I mean, his work is monochrome, but monochrome doesn't necessarily mean black and white because some of them have a slightly warm coloring to their monochromeness. Some they all, all, all his prints blue. have a bit of sepia tone, um, and he sepia tones them all the same. What you look at on the what you see on the website isn't actually um, the precise sepia color of the prints. Aha, okay. Um, worth pointing out that um, if if you're interested in photography, you need to see prints. Um, people will tell you print your own, but it's not even that. You need to see prints that are printed by. So real photographers doing? who know how to print. Okay. Um, these are silver gelatin prints, which means that they have a slight tingle from the silver in them. They've got a slight sepia tone. They have a depth when you look at them. And in fact, um, the, the next one I want to look at is a photo of three trees, which is another one on my wall. I have four of his photos. Um, and when you look at this photo from a distance, you see, OK, three trees. One of them has leaves and two of them are kind of skeletons. Um, but when you look more closely, you can see that there's snow on the left side of the trees, sort of three quarters of the trunks are covered with snow. Mm. When you see the actual print, the detail of those branches on the left and the leaves on the right is really stunning. Um, another thing that's interesting, his prints are all seven and three quarter inch by seven and three quarter inch. He makes a handful of larger prints, but all of them are – most of them are very small. That's about what twenty centimeters, roughly. Yeah, yeah and big. he said he told me that he does that size because he wants people to have to get close to the prints and look at them very closely. Right. If you look at them from a distance, you miss a lot. But as you look more closely, you see these details that that kind of there's almost a feeling of of depth in the prints. It's very subtle, uh, but again, this one with the three trees, you can actually see it because of the intricate elements of the, the branches on the left and the leaves on the right. It's very interesting you mentioned the print size because what, what strikes me as you scroll through his website is all of his thumbnails are extremely arresting as thumbnails. They're the kind of thumbnail that makes you want to see more. And if you're printing your stuff small... You do need the photograph to grab you from the other end of the room to make you walk close, to make you immerse yourself, to make you get your nose up to it. And if they work as thumbnails, they must also work uh, from a distance. Yeah, that's a good point because when you are looking at something – like in, in the exhibit I saw, there were 40, 45 photos in a gallery. It wasn't very big and you walk around and you're a few feet away but you have to make that – you're attracted by something and as you get closer, it kind of opens up, right? Yes. Um, imagine you've just poured a glass of red wine and you start to smell it. It's when you bring it up to your nose that you get the full the, the full bouquet of the wine. It's the same thing with smaller photos like this. And there are plenty of photographers who make huge photos and, and it's almost like you need to be far away. If you're too close, you're overwhelmed. 
Um, but here, these are, I wouldn't call them miniatures, um, but they're small enough that you do have to make the effort to go up to them. And there's a communication that happens. I know that sounds a little bit, um, you know, airy, but there is a communication. I'll buy that completely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason he's photographing is to communicate with us. So I I don't think, don't be afraid of being too airy. I think that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. Um, Sorry. No, no, it's fine. It's just, I'm I'm just trying to think it's hard. You know, there are lots of photographers that I like and and I've got books from lots of photographers, but there's something about this. There's, even though there's a a wide disparity of subjects, um, there's something about his work that has a, it has a tone, it has a color, it it has a flavor, right? That as you said earlier, when we started, there's something similar about them, even though they're all different. There's a lot of trees. There's a lot of trees in Hokkaido, trees in snow. Hmm. Um, you will find repeating elements. There's a lot of um, sticks in water, right? Uh, the, 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 he, he said to me he had started the whole sticks in water trend um, that is extremely common now when you look at minimalist photography. Someone puts a camera on a thing, does a long exposure, got a bunch of sticks, but they don't get the composition. Hmm. Um, but, the, but there's something – I don't know. There, there's a, a familiarity when I look at his photos. And again, this is someone who's been working for more than 40 years and he's got – I think he told me he printed two or 3,000 photos, wow. so different photos over his career. Um, and I don't know if they're all on the website, but I know that he does scan everything he prints at least recently in recent years. Um, the archive is big. Like if, if you go the, into that archive, you're going to spend some time. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly what percentage of all the photos he's printed are there because, you know, he's got a huge archive of prints that, that he's kept. But, um, yeah, so there's something that's just – there's something that's familiar that's – that's that there's a language to these photos. Um, there's a, It's a style. It's a style and, and there are a lot of photographers. Um, if you're familiar with William Eggleston, his style is brash colors, um, taking photos of things that don't necessarily – that aren't necessarily photographable, um, but that work in certain ways. Um, you have photographers with unique styles like this that that stand out. And uh, again, I think people should just look at as many photographs as they can, and particularly in books, particularly in well-printed books, um, because that also is an issue. You know, looking on the screen is one thing, but you don't get the depth. When you get a really well-printed book, um, then you start seeing more and go to exhibits, galleries, museums and see prints in person um, to really appreciate how they look. Yeah. Um, you, you, you picked one, you emailed me one more photograph that I do sort of want to circle back to because strangely enough, I feel like it's a counterpart to the first one you chose. Yeah. So this is, um, this was in the exhibit that I saw last year and this is a, a small seawall um, on the sea by Mont Saint-Michel in France. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Mont Saint-Michel, but it's this area where the tide comes up and covers the the sand, and then the tide goes down, and you can cross it. It's um, almost a fairy tale castle. It's this island with this amazing medieval church and stuff on it. And, yeah, and it's so iconic. When you point, he has his back pointed at the iconic bit. Well, he he has a whole book of photos of Mont Saint-Michel. He was actually fortunate to be able to go there at night when it was closed um, over a long period of time, I think several times. And he published a book of it a few years ago. 
Um, these are stunning photos because it's empty. It's devoid of people. Now, I've been to Mont-Saint-Michel. Uh, I used to live in France and you go there and there are mobs of people any See, time of year. Void of people does not seem like a phrase I associate with Mont-Saint-Michel. Yeah. Um, but so this particular photo, this this is another one that was in the exhibit that I saw. And this might have been the first one that – Michael and I walked around um, and I was recording as we were discussing things. I, this might have been the first one we discussed. And he was pointing out the fact that when you're looking at a black and white photo, what grabs you first is the black. Yes. And here – it grabs you, it's central, but your eye is attracted to the right. And then your eye is, it just follows along toward the left into that questioning distance of what's there. You don't know where it's going. Um, and as a good, as you said, a counterpoint to the first one, it's a similar composition in the way of it's a wall in the sea, but with very different lighting, with very different, you, you see the um, the paving stones on the ground in this one. If you look just to the right above the wall, you can see the little rivulets of water going through the sand, uh, either as the tides going out or coming in. Mm. Um, the sky is a lot more clearly demarcated with a horizon and with clouds. Um, but again, this is one of these um, abstract photos that's form and shape and contrast and it says so much more than what it is. I mean, what the subject is. It, yeah. And the reason I, I sort of describe it as an inverse of the first one you picked is in the first one, the seawall is, is the lighter colored thing and the sea and everything else is dark. In this one, the seawall is the black and everything else is light. Yeah. And in the last, in the first one, there is no detail, right? The, the exposure is super long. So every yeah. bit of detail is gone. Whereas in this one, the first thing that caught my eye was the texture in those paving stones in the top of that yeah. wall. I mean, it, it, texture is, is very important in this shot. Yeah. So it, yes, it has a strong diagonal running from bottom right corner out toward, you know, out up and to the left, but it's so different and yet so similar in its broad strokes. And the reason I love this photograph is because there's a kink in the wall. Yeah. It's not a, It's not the perfect shapes you would usually get when you go with a shape-based composition. There's a kink in the wall, so it's a little bit imperfect, a little bit organic, a little bit more human than if yeah. it were a straight yeah. line. Yeah. And if you think about it, this is, uh, I mean, this particular wall might be um, recent, but Mont-Michel is centuries old. Um, the structure itself, the way it's built on the island. Uh, I'm looking on the website. It says that this was – he calls this winding wall and it was shot in 2004. And I think that's key, the, the, the word winding there because that kink, if you look at it, what purpose does it serve, right? It, it's yeah. almost like a what, – what do you call it on a road? A lay-by where a car can pull over, but it's not. Yeah, because there's plenty it's wide enough. It's not deep enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the path is pretty wide and the, the, the hollow is, is too shallow to be useful as a lay-by. So yeah. why, why, why does it exist? Is, yeah, that does make you think. And maybe there, it's a fossil in the sense that maybe there was a tower there once and what's left, all that's left of it now is a kink in a wall that used to be a big round thing. I, who knows? Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. In fact, um, uh, on the, the website, the archive from Mont-Saint-Michel is just... Uh, a series of extraordinary photos. And, and I would strongly recommend any of his books. This one in particular um, is quite striking. Again, uh, there are some daytime photos, but a lot of them are long exposures at night. 
And you can't always tell if it's night or day, right? Because uh, if the sky is dark, um, it could have been day with him just darkening it in the dark room and the sky is light, um, then it's obviously day, but it's not even clear. Could it, is it dawn? Is it dusk? Um, you know, what the, these photos are, are particularly interesting in terms of light, um, because there, there are artificial lights in a lot of the photos that are illuminating different things. And he really plays with them a lot. Um, light coming out of windows or doors and light shining on things. Um, so it, it is a fascinating series of photos and yeah, great book. Uh, I love this one in particular. Yeah, this there, honestly, folks, you 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 need to have at least an hour, and then you need to go to michaelkenna.com and just immerse yourself. the 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 Mont Saint Michel is extremely varied um, in his style. Again, some really striking architectural stuff. Some really strong plays with dark and light while he was in there at night, and then the the the, the iconic reflection of that famous island sitting as the tide is up floating abbey he calls it yeah that that works yeah and and this is so this is the type of subject that's very hard to shoot because everyone shot it right mm. because it, it's it's a shape that's familiar and how can you shoot it in different ways and as you look through he's put a number of photos where the the island itself is in different locations in the frame um, like sometimes the at the thirds, bottom maybe. Sorry? Like the rule of thirds. The one that just caught my eye is a square shot where the island is reflected and it's perfectly on the rule of thirds with a horizon on one third. Yeah, okay, if you it's want. It's the exception but if, that proves the rule, Kirk. <laughs> yeah. If you look at most of them, though, there's no rule. The, exactly. the one just next to that one, the the island is dead center at the bottom, um, although the spire is not precisely dead center. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting composition as well. Um, but, yeah, how do you shoot something like that and get an interesting photo um, because everyone's – well, I'd say it's less well-known than Notre Dame, but everyone's seen it. Um, if they're into photography, they've certainly seen I this. think everyone knows that island. They just don't know it's called Mont Saint-Michel. That's possible. That's entirely possible. I think um, people call it the Disney Castle, <laughs> but you know it, it always really? always evokes that to me. That that would be a shame. Um, I, I I lived not far from there, so I visited a few times. Um, obviously, everyone in France knows it. It is an iconic shape, um, but um, Disney Castle? No, it's I, so much nicer than a Disney Castle. Absolutely. You know, I, personally, I've always been fascinated by the Normans. So Mont Saint Michel has been a place I've been fascinated with for a long time. Ah, uh, yes, but there's the whole argument. Is it in Normandy or is it in Brittany? I, I don't know, but the guys who built it well, were very Norman in their approach to architecture. Well, were they or were they Britons? The French, the, the Normans claim it as theirs, the Britons claim it as theirs. It's it's literally considered to be the border between Normandy and Brittany in France, but that's another story. That is another story because that history is so intertwined. Yeah. That's to be absolutely fascinating as well. Yeah, yep. it's... This is such a good pick, Kirk. Um, I am... I, um, I was... I, He'd caught my eye when you mentioned him on your show, but now that I'm now that you've pulled me back in again, I I think my wallet will become a little bit lighter and my coffee table <laughs> a little bit heavier. Um, yeah. I think with any photographer, you need to be exposed to enough images to appreciate the style, 
And and there are going to be things that repeat um, shapes and lights and, and and you know not being a color photographer contrasts, um, but it takes a lot to see what he does and then to be able to recognize it in photograph after photograph. Even though there's a wide variety, there's always something going on that makes his photographs what they are. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much and this there. isn't the case for all photographs, and and I would particularly um, single out so-called street photographers who basically take photos of people walking in front of interesting walls. Um, street photography like that is is a cliche, and if you're interested in street photography, look at the greats like Gary Winogrand or Joel Myrowitz in his early days when he was doing street photography, um, rather than the sort of I don't know, tired old person in front of a wall or person standing looking at the cell phone. That's a pretty common one these days on Instagram for street photography. Although I guess these days in the lockdown, people aren't doing many street photographs, are they? Well, certainly not with people. <laughs> well, I see that's actually – this would be a beautiful time to do street photography and not be concerned about trying to find an interesting person but trying to find the interesting details of buildings and walls and alleys and 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 shadows and, and the kind of things that street photography tends to ignore, I think. Because it's obstructed normally, right? You you couldn't get a shot of a lot of the architecture so well, it's full of people. And I, grew, I grew up in New York City and if you went down to the financial district around Wall Street on a Sunday morning, it was devoid of people. And I'm sure it's pretty much the case. Um, you have cities with business districts and you can get there at certain times. Often Sunday morning is a good time um, when there aren't a lot of people. And that's probably a better time to look for things. Don't be looking for people. Yeah. Um, look at the things. Look at what's around. Look at the – again, if it's in the morning, you've got the sun coming up. You're going to get some interesting reflections and and, and light. Um, it, it's – there's something to be said for photographs of people and there's something to be said of, for photographs that don't have people. Um, I think the latter is – uh, not notwithstanding your standard, you know, beautiful landscape and nature, um, the latter is a lot more difficult. And particularly, again, black and white photography, um, you have different um, imperatives when you're trying to find interesting subjects. Um, and I, I mean, I don't live near a big city, and I wouldn't want to go now anyway. But um, it it could be a time if you are out walking doing your shopping, going someplace in the streets empty, take your camera and see what you can get if the police don't roust you for um, breaking some sort of arbitrary rule. Yeah, that's a good tip. Um, yeah, I think look, uh, there will be links to, in fact, I'll embed these images into the show notes so everyone uh, can look at them. Uh, I think there's been a really fascinating tip. I've had great fun talking to you. So I just want to say thank you for giving up a chunk of your morning to spend some time with myself and the listeners. Uh, so, so thank you very much, Kirk. Well, thank you, Bart, for having me. It's great to get to know you. Yeah, likewise. And uh, there will be links in the show notes to everything Kirk does and to uh, Michael Kenna and to these images at lets-talk.ie. Um, so, Kirk, again, thank you and stay safe. And hopefully we can have you on again sometime in the future. OK, Bart, thanks very much. And that brings another show to an end. Uh, thank you again to Kirk for giving up some of his Monday morning to uh, have a chat with me. Uh, you will, of course, find the photographs we're talking about at let's-talk.ie. 
And while you are there, you'll find large blue buttons under a heading, support the show. Now, before I say another word, we are in difficult times. If you have been supporting the show and you're, under, you're feeling the pinch, for goodness sake, stop, please. You know, please don't support the show if it means putting yourself through any sort of hardship. You know, podcasting is just not important compared to so many other things in life at the moment. So uh, please don't anyone feel under pressure to support the show. Having said that, these difficult times make me twice as grateful to everyone who is in a position where they can continue to support the show. Um, Your contributions are so much more valuable in these troubled times and um, I always appreciate them, but I guess I appreciate everything even more. And Really, it's not just about money. If you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost anything other than a little bit of time, simply reviewing the show on your podcatcher of choice is extremely valuable. Simply spreading the word, you know, I was going to say in in the real world, but we don't get to spend much time there. Um, In the virtual world among your friends is very valuable. Tweeting about it, posting on Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever newfangled contraption people are using these days, all of that really helps to spread the word about the show. So again, thank you to everyone who has supported the show. Thank you to everyone who feels comfortable continuing to support the show. And please, if you're feeling the pinch, don't think twice about cancelling your support of the show. It's really not important in the grand scheme of things. Anyway, talk to you soon. And please, 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 everyone, take care of yourselves. And uh, if possible, do so safely. Happy stopping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Some people like their live casts to be informative, to the point, provocative, and timely. The Mac to the Future live cast is some of those things, but we won't say which ones. Join Dave Ginsberg, Guy Searle, and Warren Sklar for a weekly dose of Apple Fun every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time over on Facebook or in the Mac to the Future Facebook group.